before we move on today, I just want to go over our vision statement. Can we uh, put that up, David? Okay, can we read this together after three? Ready? One, two, three. Our vision is to build a radical, relevant church that empowers people to express God's heart, fulfill their dreams, and change the world. Thank you so much. Uh, Vision is so important. Seeing is so important. Where there is no vision, the Bible says, the people cast off restraint. Vision is important. It's important to know what we're doing. And this vision statement is, is very specific. And it starts with our vision is to build. Everyone say build. The only thing Jesus said he would build is his church. The first mention of church is in, in uh, Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus says, I will build, build, build my church. So what we're doing is we're building something according to the pattern that the scripture has laid out. The second thing is that it's a radical church. The New Testament church was pretty radical. This bunch of disciples turned the world upside down. So we're building something that is not only radical, but it's also relevant. That it's relevant to the world we, that we live in. The world you can't enter is the world you can't reach. Paul says this, I have become all things to all men that I may win some. So we're building something that is radical, that is relevant, and that empowers People, everyone say empowers, to express God's heart. Really important. We're empowered to express God's heart. Matthew 6, verse 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. Jesus in Matthew 6 taught us to pray, Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Wherever the will of God is done, there the kingdom of God has come. And the role of the church, the purpose of the church, is to bring the kingdom, the rule of God, the domain of the king right here on earth. And when we do that, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he gives you the desires of our heart. And that's where we fulfill our dreams. And we're about fulfilling dreams and going somewhere with this and to change the world. We must always realize that God is a big God. For God so loved the world. And so often it's, we, don't, we can get caught up in the church being something to meet my needs, which can, produces a consumer mentality, rather than realizing I'm here at this part in history to serve the king, to extend his domain and his purpose on the earth. What local church, like a vehicle of a car, can I get in where I can best use the gifts God has given me to serve that ultimate purpose? And that's our vision statement. Amen? Um, we're going to do something a little bit different today on the whole thing of empowerment. Everyone say empowerment. empowerment. To empowerment. God is, our vision is to build a radical, relevant church that empowers people. And I was sitting with some of our younger guys who have um, recently, three of them have recently come back from Hillsong uh, in Australia. And I had the privilege last week of just taking them away for a night and just hanging out with them and just listening to the strings of their heart play. And I began to ask them questions, and they began to ask me very good questions, very deep questions. And one of them, when I began to ask him about his dreams, it was to teach the Word of God, to pastor people, to lead God's people. And he was very articulate. I always appreciate when someone can articulate it, what it is that God has called them to be a do. And so uh, by the end, I listened and, and I said, great, well, next Sunday, today, I'd like you to take 15 minutes 
and I'd like you to come and share uh, with Life Church in Geneva, St. Charles, Geneva, and, and just pour out whatever's in your heart. So church, I wonder if you would honor this man as he comes up. His name is Jacques. I'm not going to steal any of his thunder. I'm going to let him uh, share who he is and his own background, a little bit of his testimony. But today the purpose is to tip up a little bit of what's in somebody else's cup into ours. And then we're going to hear from someone else. So where's Jacques? Jacques, Jacques, where are you? Jacques, where are you? Come on, Jacques. Can we give it up for Jacques? Come on, let's honor this man. Let me pray for you really quick. Father, we thank you for Jacques. We just thank you for your people. And God, we just thank you that you have given each one of us a song to sing. You've each given us, each one of us, um, a deposit of you that you've given to, so that we can deposit into your church. And as Jacques speaks, Holy Ghost, I ask that you would anoint him, God, that you would, that you would bring clarity to his thoughts as he pours into us. You would pour into him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jacques. Thank you, sir. How's it going? So before I say anything, can I just place honor where honor is due? And can we all just put our hands together for our awesome pastors, Dan and Kay? Really? Like, thank you guys so much for your radical generosity. Um, if you guys know them at all, you know that they are just radically generous people in every sense of the word, with everything that they have, with their time, with their finances, with their hearts. So thank you guys. Thank you for who you are. So you're probably asking yourself right now, who is this kid and why does he have a microphone? And to be perfectly honest, I'm asking myself the same question. So if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jacques. I am originally from Tennessee. And then when I was 13, moved to South Carolina and uh, it was in South Carolina when I was 15 that I got saved, and I ever since have just had uh, a passion for God's church and for, for seeing God's people loving others and loving God. Um, and so that passion, that drive, that desire led me to Bible college in Sydney, Australia a couple of years ago, which is where I met the amazing Fresh and Mr. Joseph Westrich, with whom I now live. Um, and I spent two years at Hillsong in Sydney studying. And at the end of those two years, I felt really strongly that I wanted to stick around a little bit longer. I felt really strongly that I wanted to work there a little bit longer, spend some time just saving up some money. I mean, Sydney, Australia, why not? So. I, I took the time, and to, to be able to do this, I would have to go and get another visa. And if any of you have ever dealt with visas, you know they are the devil incarnate. They are terrible. They're so expensive. You don't know if you're actually going to get them. You might get stuck in another country for a while. It's really, really stressful. But to do this, to get another visa to stay and work in Australia, I would have to leave and be in another country to do it. So me and a couple of friends got together and we decided, well, if we're going to have to leave the country, we might as well go somewhere fun. So we decided to go to Bali, Indonesia. Um, you know, if, if you're going to be stressed out about visas, you might as, be stressed, might as well be stressed out on the beach about visas. So uh, Hannah Stoll's actually told us this great story about Indonesia a couple weeks ago, and we know that she's moving there in the new year. Um, so my friends and I, we pack up, we head out to, to Bali, Indonesia, 
We are broke as, because we have to spend so much money on visas, but we are broke on the beach and we are happy about it. So we're just, we're just chilling, we're taking it easy, great Indonesian food, and we've got all these different recommendations for what we should do and what we should check out while we're there. And so we, 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 one day we just go out, we go to the beaches, we're all tatty in our, our ripped up clothes, old shorts, and we, uh, we hop in an Uber and we go to one of the places that was recommended to us. It was like this little restaurant that's on like a, a cliff face. It's really pretty. And when we get there, right, we are, we are just like, we are in our oldest, most beat up clothes. It's hilarious. We get there and we pull up and we realize it's not just a restaurant. This is like a resort. This is like a really, really nice resort. And so people come up to the door and they, they open the doors for us. And we're like, oh my gosh, we are way out of our league right now. And we get out. And as we get out, they say, how may we address you today? I'm like, I've never been asked that question. What do you say? You can't give your name for that. I'm like, I don't know, Lizard King Jacques Balker, how's it going? Like, what, what do you say to, how do, you, how do I address you? We're just so far outside of our league. We know we don't have any money to spend on this place. And we just, we're just taking it easy. We're chilling by the beach. And um, after, after probably another week, we finally get our visas. We go back to Australia. We're just chilling in Australia. And when I say I'm broke, I mean I am broke. I have $60 to my name, right? I land in Australia, and where we lived on what was called Albion Avenue, we would park our bicycles right out front. And as I get home, I see somebody stole my bicycle. I'm like, are you kidding me? And then I go inside, I'm like, all right, whatever, I'm just going to browse on my phone before I have to go to work. And as I'm browsing through my phone, my phone just dies, like completely dead for no reason whatsoever. It's just black screen. Awesome. Great. Love it. And I've got 60 bucks. I'm like, there's no way I'm getting another phone. There's no way I'm able to afford anything right now. And then at that moment, I realized that in a couple days, I was going to have a payment of 40 bucks come out of my, my bank account. And it was going towards something called compassion. Does anybody know who com compassion is? You sponsor children through them, and you can, you can give uh, a certain amount of money each month, and they'll sponsor a child somewhere in the world. And, and I was just like, man, I just, I do not have the cash for this right now. Like, if I give this, I'm probably not going to be able to eat for half this week. Like, I'm going to have to fast every other day just to make it through. So I'm like, God, I, I can't do this. I don't know if I'm going to be able to afford this. And as clear as day, when I was talking to God about this, it's like he said, man, you can't afford not to do this. You can't afford not to do this. And I learned a very special lesson in expectation that day. I learned how sometimes in, in the middle of a storm, what we truly believe about God comes out. What we truly, who we truly believe God is comes out when we have nothing to our name. And so I was reading that week in the Word, and I was in Luke chapter 5, verse 4. And this is the same scripture that Dan's been speaking from the past few weeks, and it's when Jesus calls the disciples from from the sea. And it says in verse 4, it says, And when he had finished speaking, Jesus, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing, but at your word we'll, we'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. 
They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they both began to sink. Man, awesome is that? They both began to sink. And what that really cemented in my spirit in that moment was, man, if I took God at his word, what kind of boat would I build in expectation of what he wants to do in my life? What kind of boat am I going to build in expectation of the catch that he wants to pour out of my life? Of course, like, they toiled the whole night before. They got nothing. But like Dan said, they washed their nets. And they went back. They were mature enough to say, we're going to try again. And even though they had nothing to show, they still chose to sow. And that, that takes faith. So all I want to talk to you guys about today is what kind of boat do we build in expectation of who God is, an expectation of what God wants to do in our lives. What kind of boat do we build? So first, I think we need to build a better boat. Obviously, better. Like, that's simple. Of course you'd want to build a better boat. But what does it look like to build a better boat with our expectation? It looks like not having a boat that has holes poked all through it. If you have holes poked in your boat, as soon as waves come, as soon as storms come, you're going to sink. What does it look like to have a boat that doesn't have holes in it? It looks like finding healing. It looks like finding, giving forgiveness where forgiveness is needed. Because there are a few things in this life that will sink your expectation of God quicker than self-perceived unworthiness. If we allow unworthiness to creep into our hearts, if we allow unforgiveness, if we allow hurt to fester, then what happens is our nets break as soon as the catch comes. It's like Dan said, we have to wash our nets. I know some of us go through so much hurt, but it's so imperative to be able to, to get back up again and to be able to wash our nets again and say, no, I believe. I, I know I don't have anything to show for it, but I believe that God's going to pour something out. So first, got to build a better boat. Second, you have to build a buoyant boat. Duh. Of course you got to build a buoyant boat. Of course you have to build a boat that floats. You wouldn't build a boat out of stone. You'd build a boat out of wood because it floats. So the question that brings in my mind is, what is the substance of our boats? What is the substance of my boat? What is it that keeps my faith afloat in the good and the bad? What is it that keeps me afloat? And in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, the word says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest on our behalf, having become high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is the sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. And if we, if we know who he is, then when the storm comes, we're not going to sink. When the storm comes, we're going to have something that can stay afloat because we put our faith in the right place. See, it's, it's in times of fear that the substance of our foundation is tested. It's in times when you've got 60 bucks to your name and, and you don't know what you're going to do. You don't know how you're going to eat for the week and you're being asked to be generous. That's when the substance of our faith gets tested when we, we start to really understand what we believe about God in those times. And that's why having just a daily, a daily encounter with Jesus, a daily meeting with him is so imperative because it's in those times that you build that boat that's going to either sink or swim in the times 
of difficulty, in the times of trial. It's in those times that we, we understand what we believe about God. And that's the thing is, in times of trial, our foundational doctrine becomes our flotation device. It's in times of trial that what we believe about God really comes out. So one, we've got to build a better boat. Two, we have to build a buoyant boat. And three, we've got to build a bigger boat. We have to build a bigger boat. Why do we have to build a bigger boat? Because we know that God is trustworthy to, to come through on his promises. He promises us that he is our healer. He promises us that he's our provider. He promises us that he's our comforter. So even though we might be in a season of need or a season of hurt or a season of, of, of just being broke with 60 bucks in our bank account, we can know that he wants to open up the floodgates of heaven. He wants to fulfill those things in our lives. And so in those seasons of silence, how do we build a boat? Do we, do we choose to build a bigger boat? And that's so difficult to say because I know a lot of us might be in a season where we feel like we may have lost everything. And that makes you question. It makes you wonder, well, if I feel like I've lost everything, does that mean that I made a wrong turn somewhere? Does that mean that maybe I didn't expect God to move the way that he should have? Did I do something wrong? And no, I want to assure you that that's not the case. If you feel like you're in a season of emptiness, it's not because God has taken everything from you. It's because he wants everything for you. He wants to encourage you in this season, in a season of difficulty, that there is so much more up ahead. There's so much more than you could possibly imagine, so much that your boat will begin to sink when he opens it up on you. And so in a time of silence, like Noah, Noah built a boat for 120 years and people chastised him. How long can we build our boat in the silence and just keep building it bigger and bigger? See, when, when I had that time that I only had 60 bucks and I had to give 40, I didn't know where my next, where my next dollar was going to come from. I had like two weeks until I got paid. I was going to have to survive two weeks on 20 bucks. As a college student, that's not impossible. But it's still not probable and not enjoyable. But I chose. I was like, man, no, I believe that God's my, my provider. I believe that God is, is going to come through. He's not, he's not a liar. He, he's true to his word. And I chose to give that money. And I, I want you to hear my heart here. We don't give because we expect God to give back. We give because we know we have a provider. It's not transactional. It's relational. And we know, God, man, I know who you are. And I know you're calling me to be a generous person because that's who you want your people to be. So even though I don't have a lot, I'm going to choose to be that right now. And just, I, can, I just can I just tell you, the next couple of weeks, the floodgates of heaven opened up. Just one thing after another happened. People I didn't even know were giving me money. People were like, I don't know you, but I just feel like I have to give you 30 bucks. Like, oh, awesome, thanks. That's like a week's worth of groceries now. That's fantastic. Just out of nowhere. And if I can encourage you around anything this morning, it's just what kind of boat are we building an expectation of what God wants to do in our lives? He's good to his word. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. And it's worth building a bigger boat. Thanks, guys. Wow. Amazing. So good. Wasn't that great? Jacques, thank you. And I know some of you are thinking, could we take up an offering for a new shirt for him? I know you were. So we're not going to take up an offering, but if you'd like to buy Jacques a new shirt, you can. We had a preacher here once, and he uh, had ripped jeans. And um, a lady in the church came after and said, could we take up an offering? He has holes in his jeans. I'm like, I think he bought them like that. <laughs> like, 
He's like, what? I'm like, just doesn't matter. <laughs> You're very cool, Zach. We know that. We, yeah. Are you ready for the next one? This is good. I want to read this scripture. This is actually one of my favorite scriptures in, in the whole of the Bible. And it's, I think the reason I love it so much is because it says so much about discipleship. Uh, the first one I'll just quote because it's one of my fa- also one of my favorites. And that's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Easy to remember, 2, 2, 2. And it's Paul writing from prison. It's one of the last letters he writes. In fact, it is the last letter he writes. And he's writing to a man named Timothy. And he says, Timothy, everything that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, I want you to entrust. Everyone say entrust. To faithful. Another translation says reliable. Another one says teachable. Mostly it's translated teachable. And then it says this. Paul says, who will have the ability to teach others also. Can you see the power of discipleship there? Entrust what you have into people who are teachable, first of all, but also they have the ability to teach others also. And Paul writes, this, that's the, the, the scripture I want to hone in on is in Philippians. It's in Philippians chapter 2. And Paul says this to the church in Philippi. He says, I'm sending you Timothy. And then he says this, there is no one like Timothy, for Timothy has the interests of Christ. Wow. You ever thought that? How powerful that is? I woke up one morning and the Holy Spirit, this was years ago, he said, are you interested in what I'm interested in? Because Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, talks to, about this, to the church in Philippi. He says, I'm going to send you someone who has the interest of Christ. And then he actually calls people out. He says, other people don't. They peddle the gospel. They have other agendas. But Timothy has your interests and the interests of Christ at heart. Paul in Corinth says that we're to know no man after the flesh, but after the spirit. And there's something powerful. And this next person I want to introduce carries those two things. Number one, they have the interests of Christ. And number two, they are somebody that I've got to know after the spirit, not the flesh. And this person, I, for those of you who don't know, I'll tell the story very quickly. I was in a coffee shop right at the beginning of a 40-day fast. And I was practicing the presence of God and practicing how to find God afresh every morning. And I got my coffee. I was sitting in a coffee shop and I opened my hands and I said, good morning, Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit began to speak to me, not audibly, but he says, will you trust me? Will you follow me? And I said, yes. I said, I always follow you. He said, no, you don't. And I said, oh, okay, then I'll follow you. And as I was going through this funny interaction with the Holy Spirit, um, and he said, I wasn't, I'm not going to follow you. I'd like you to follow me. Will you follow me? And I said, yes, I will. And I began to listen. I listened in on a, on a conversation or bits of a conversation by somebody else who was sitting around the corner from me. And the person that was sitting around the corner from me happened to lead, to, to, uh, lead a church several cities away. And someone I'd had a conversation about this man who I'd never met the night before in our home for about literally five minutes. And I suddenly realized that this was a divine intervention of the Holy Spirit. That I'm sitting in a coffee shop listening to this conversation. And 
or parts of the conversation. And if you remember, um, I went online to see if this was the same person, and I looked across, and I could see his face online. I'm like, this is the same person. And then he got up, and he walked out, and I ran across the the parking lot and shouted his name and he didn't turn around and then he did turn around and when he did turn around he said how do you know my name well now I just feel like a stalker <laughs> so I'm like oh well and he's walking towards me like how do you know my name I'm like well last night there was somebody at my house and they were talking about somebody that was a pastor of a church lived a few cities away and I was like oh that's terrible oh and I went to bed feeling sad and I went to the coffee shop and I opened my hands I said good morning Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit said will you trust me and will you follow me? And I said, yes. And I said, I always follow you. He said, no, you don't. And I said, yes, I do. He said, no, you don't. I'm not going to follow you. Shh. Then I listened, and then I saw this person, and it was you, but you didn't know me, and I didn't know you. And then you started to talk, and then I went online, and I saw your face, and I saw it was you, and the Holy Spirit said, get up and follow him. So I got up and follow you, and I shouted your name, and here we are. That's when God joins someone together in the Spirit. Not the flesh. It's like, hey, man, what's your favorite football team? Where are you from? Do we have the same interests? They're fleshly things, not necessarily wrong. But Paul says we're to know no man after the flesh, but after the spirit. And I just want to say we are on a journey with an amazing church called Antioch Church from Wheaton. And many of them are here today. Can you just give us a wave here from Antioch Church? I just want to say God bless you guys. We love you so much. And just this week, I just felt this, the more I spend with this man, and I just hit the, this, he literally has, and his wife has a, have a beautiful spirit. And um, this man, who I want to come and just share um, for the duration of our time this morning, um, I believe has the interests of Christ. Paul talked about people, uh, Jesus, I think it was Nathaniel who was a man without guile. And it's, I want to say, church, it's rare to see people that you can say that person has the genuine, the, the, the interests of Christ. They are genuine and they carry the interest of Christ. And this person is a man that I've got to know after the Spirit. And as I got to know him, just put on a personal level, it's been nothing but fun. So church, will you please stand and honor Andy Doyle, the pastor of Antioch Church, is gonna come on up here. <laughs> Love you, bro. Um, sorry to disappoint. If you know English people, they do not like being complimented in public. So Jacques, phenomenal message. When you're giving honor to Dan, he'll look at the floor. And I thought, poor Dan, he's being honored in public. I had no idea what was going to come. Uh, thank you for hosting us. After our first service here, I think it's four Sundays ago, people came up, said two things. God is really in this. And the second thing they said was, you sound really different from Dan. So before I speak a little, I'm going to explain the difference. Dan is from Bath. That's the west of England. And I'm from Cambridge, which is the east of England. Bath is very, very famous in Europe. Its whole heritage is the Roman Empire. Let me hear you say that, church. Say Roman Empire. <laughs> Thank you. 
Cambridge is famous for the Christian Reformation. <laughs> so can we all say that, church, after me? Say, Christian Reformation. Christian Reformation, thank you. Please don't let that be the only thing you remember. Um, I'm going to do a quick message. Dan asked me on Thursday to uh, speak, and I got to put something on my heart to share, particularly after that opening. I'm kind of thinking the less I say, the less I'm going to make myself look an idiot, and people will just remember I have the heart of Christ. Gosh. Um, so I'm going to talk about grace. Three types of grace have been very, very prevalent to me this year. So each different year, you kind of you go on this Christian journey, and just as you grow in your faith, it's almost like you need different pairs of shoes as your feet grow. Uh, I have come to a certain stage of my faith. I've been saved since 2003. Uh, I'm just learning a lot more about the Christian faith, particularly about grace, particularly about the family of God, and how it's the kingdom of God so much more important than the local church, how it's others are so much more important than ourselves. And so I want to share that. So very quick testimony. So I uh, grew up in Cambridge, uh, loving parents. I was raised as an only child. Uh, my two sisters weren't happy about that. Uh, sent to boarding school. Uh, boarding school was a great place for me to get a really, really good education. It was also a place where a whole load of junk happened that I'm still trying to process. And when you come to faith, you're aware that you're forgiven, but you're not always aware of how deeply and how fully God wants to transform us from the inside out. So I'm still on that journey of healing from the blessing of boarding school. But what it did, as uh, soon as I kind of left boarding school, I went to high school for a couple of years, uh, I went all out into a hedonistic lifestyle. And that meant by the age of 26, I was uh, addicted to a whole manner of different things. Some people are addicted to different stuff. I was a poly-substance abuser. That means you just use everything. Everything. And you do it over like a three- or four-day period. You taper off on one, add a different one. And my life was awful. Like, I look in the mirror and think, I do not like who I am. Like at no point when I thought I'd self-medicate did I think I'd end up who I was. But when you end up in that place, it's horrific. Now I've since learned that the Bible says if you're lost, it's a biblical theology of being lost, you're blind, bound, condemned, helpless, hopeless, and leaning toward hell. And I was feeling that a lot more than probably people that hadn't quite gone down that hedonistic path as I had. So I was 26, uh, afraid of death, and it was coming much quicker than I'd want it to. Uh, I had this real angst in me. I didn't know if God was real or not, but I knew that I had some stuff in my past that I needed to get away from. And at the same time, when you, you live such a a hedonistic lifestyle, you just have no meaning or purpose. Uh, fast forward, I, working with a guy called Henry in finance at the time, one of my problems was I was a functional addict. That's a real problem because you don't always hit rock bottom. You just keep going along and trying to hide stuff. Henry was the first Christian I'd ever met. 
at 26. I'm not even joking. Before that, the other Christian I had seen was Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. <laughs> and when you're an addict, I looked at Ned Flanders with some degree of envy. That's how lost you can be. Uh, anyway, Henry was totally different from all my other friends. He, like, he would ask me questions and he would listen. All my other friends would kind of ask me a question and then wait to speak. And so he invited me to a church outre outreach event in Cambridge, the heart of the Christian Reformation. Uh, I, I said yes. I found out it, was going to be in, it wasn't going to be in a church, which is important to me. Uh, I went there. It was an equivalent to like Barnes & Noble's kind of cafe. And for the first time ever, it was a five-week course on the Gospel of Mark explaining Christianity. It's called Christianity Explored. Go figure. Uh, I heard the Gospel, and I'd never heard it before. And I heard that the Gospels were historically trustworthy. Again, I had no idea about this. I was completely and utterly clueless. So once I heard you could trust the Gospel of Mark, once I heard who Jesus was, and that he didn't claim just to be a healer or a teacher. He very specifically said he was the Son of God. I suddenly became really interested in who he was. And so I had a table leader, uh, a guy and a, his wife, Carla. The guy's name was Joel. And after this first session, I said to Carla, like, uh, I'm here with some friends from work. They think I'm this kind of person. Really, I'm a frightened little boy. I don't want to be me anymore. I don't know what to do about it. I've tried my hardest in all of these different areas. And they kind of looked at me. Okay. Carla said, well, just ask Jesus into your life. Oh, that's cheesy. But you kind of, in, in England, you think Americans will just say really cheesy things. What you don't actually realize is Americans can sometimes say really true things. And they get right to the heart, so you think it's cheesy. It wasn't cheesy. It was life-giving. She said, just ask Jesus into your heart. So I got home midnight, the 11th of February, 2003. Read through the Gospel of Mark and thought, I'm going to have a go. So prayed. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for living my own way. Sorry for all the things I've done. Please forgive me. Please come into my life and help me to live for you now. And as soon as I prayed that prayer, this flooding of warmth came the whole way through me. And if you've ever heard a, good story, a ghost story around the campfire, your kind of hair stand on end. I had this phenomenal feeling of all my hair standing on end. It's a good feeling, Dan. Um, and I thought, oh my goodness, sorry. So sorry. I do not have the heart of Christ. He was never mean to his disciples. Uh, and I remember thinking, this is real. Like, ah. And I'd had lots of kind of physical pleasure through drug abuse, but this was something totally different, infinitely better. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is real. And I felt forgiven. It wasn't just a concept that I had to like believe in. It was, oh, this is real. And I realized then that you get grace from God. It's forgiving grace. And an acronym for grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. 
God's riches at Christ's expense. So because Christ died on the cross, you have complete forgiveness of your sins. Every sin in the past, every sin in the present, and every sin in the future. And not only are you forgiven, but you have a full living relationship with the God and King of the universe. And there is a future existence with Him, where it won't just be us walking by faith and by hope, but we'll be with Him. And all of these former things have passed away. So I found out that there's forgiving grace, and with forgiving grace comes peace. You'll often see in the Gospels, and also uh, Jesus says that He comes to bring peace. You'll see the Apostle Paul says it in lots of his letters. Reading Colossians this week, the first thing he says is, grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. And those are the foundational aspects of our faith. Uh, so I realized, scared of death, I was given life. Aware that I was unforgiven, I was given forgiveness. And this meaningless life, suddenly I was given purpose. Cut a whole lot out there. Let's go to this year. In different journeys on the Christian life, you go across different bits of terrain. Like it is a, it, the pilgrim's progress is such an accurate description of the Christian life. There's times when you're running downhill, there's times where it's kind of a bit slippy, there's times when you're walking uphill through the valley of the shadow of death, and you are trusting that God hasn't forgotten about you. That was a little bit like this year. In fact, my most despair-filled weekend, uh, some crisis was happening in our church, I'm not going to go into detail, that was when Dan reached out to me. That's when I met him outside the coffee shop. And in the absence of God, when you call out to him and he just doesn't seem there, I'm not sure all of what Dan said. I do remember asking him which football team he supported. So he was in the spirit, I was in the flesh. Uh, what I walked away with was, oh, we are not alone. Like, it's going to be okay. That provider, that God knew everything. And at just the right time, just connected uh, Antioch Church to Life Church through connecting Dan to me. And I just knew, oh, and that's the grace of family. Like we have forgiving grace, but before we get to heaven, there's family grace. And I commend you, the, the big thing about Antioch is we're a family, and we pursue the presence of God. And coming here, that is so evident that you're a family. Like Dan's leadership is he's a cup. Different people are able to use their gift. He's not a cap. And you, the presence of God is strong. I spoke to Johnny at the beginning of the service. He goes, how are you doing? I said, I feel a bit meh. Um, I've been ill this week. And then when you get ill and you have man flu and no one's paying attention, you kind of, you just take it wherever you go to get some sympathy. And he goes, we're well, at the right place. Soon as the worship started, there's no better place than you can be in the family of God. Like this is what you most need and the spiritual attack is, this is what you should take a break from. You're feeling a little bit under the weather? Go and watch the Bears game. That'll make you feel fantastic. <coughs> 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 
Okay, so there's the family of grace. It's where we don't do the Christian life alone. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, sorry, the writer of Hebrews in uh, the letter to the uh, Hebrews, chapter 12. Now, my church have heard me say this before. It talks about the race of life, but how you get through the race of life. I'll just read some verses. I'll read verses 1 to 3, and then 11 to 13. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance a race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. That kind of means the alpha, the beginning, and the omega, the end of faith. For the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He then talks about how uh, God disciplines his children. He lovingly prepares us to persevere in the race of life. So he kind of does spiritual fitness exercises. And one of those things with the ever-present God is at times it just seems like he's kind of backed off a bit. There'll be a springtime of your faith. There's also like a deep wintertime of your faith. And he's saying, the writer's saying, don't give up. Like God is training you. It's because he loves you. And then he moves on uh, to verse 11. I'll finish verse 11, then 12, 13. It says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. The faith, uh, the grace that comes with the faith is a faith of fellowship. In heaven now, people are cheering us on. If you read before in Hebrews 11, it's going to be like a, a hall of faith, but each one of those people have major issues in their lives. These aren't like the stellar people. These are people who were faithful and persevered to the end. Another way of saying it is they just didn't give up. Took one step in front of another, in front of another. And in Hebrews 12, the, the essence of what they're saying here is that Christ has already won the race. W-O-N, in case my accent's off-putting. Christ has already won the race. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Our job is to run it. R-U-N. Doesn't matter where we finish. He has already won it. What matters is we help everyone along. It's really weird to have a certain color bib on in some kind of obstacle course race and just to ignore all your teammates and don't help anyone else because you've got this green bib on and they don't. The kingdom of God is very much like an obstacle course race where everyone is helping each other over all the different obstacles. Some people have gifts, some people have energy at different points. The point is, we just need to get across the line. So thank you to Antioch Church. Thank you to Life Church for being part of that fellowship of grace for my family and I, just through a challenging time. 
The final thing, so there's forgiving grace. When I came to faith, I found out like family grace, fellowship grace. The final bit is future grace. So Jacques was talking about building a bigger boat. That's a future grace that's going to come. Uh, when I came to faith, it was very much like the prodigal son. It was really easy for me to tell people about how much God forgives because I'd been forgiven so much. It, it was an easy, like, no-brainer. Why wouldn't you believe in him? And I realized that I had a, a unique conversion experience. And I realized that God didn't waste all of my sin and shame. He redeemed it, but it doesn't mean that everyone else is in that same kind of place. But I was very much aware of him being a close and present and loving father. Uh, as I've suffered with depression since coming to faith, uh, you don't know, I've got a cochlear implant and a hearing aid. I've really suffered with hearing loss as well the last kind of 10, 15 years. Uh, when that happens, you're thinking, I didn't sign up for this. Like, I signed up for the abundant life. And then when suffering comes, like, have, I, have I got something wrong? But God is much more committed to transforming our character, helping us become more like Christ than he is just satisfying our comfort. What I realize I'd like to share with you today, if you have depression, if you have deep grief in your life, you're not a bad Christian. What you actually have is lament. Lament is where you understand how everything is meant to be, and then you see how everything is. And that gap causes you to be forlorn, like a man of sorrows like Christ was, to be really moved by the news, to be drawn to tears when other people are suffering. Before Christ, my depression wasn't as bad. My hearing was better. But I had denial in place of lament. I was constantly self-medicating in ways that were poisonous to me. When you come to faith, you're aware of the gap between what's uh, meant to be and what currently is. But uh, about a month ago, I had a really big insight on future grace. So my hearing has got terrible. If you know me, uh, you'll know how miraculous it was that I heard Dan at his second attempt at shouting at me. I largely lip-read. My wife, seeing my kind of despair this year, signed me up for a hearing test. That hearing test showed that it needs to be 120 decibels for me to hear in my right ear. 120, that's loud. And then it needs to be 80 or 90 decibels for me to hear in my left ear. Now I have like a, a degenerative uh, condition in my inner ear which has caused that. So having found that out, I was like, whoa, how am I existing? A fear of providing for my family, a whole host of different things. And a depression that comes with just being hopeless. Like when you're deaf, you really kind of feel blind, <laughs> bound, condemned, helpless, hopeless. And I knew I wasn't leaning towards hell, but this life was very tiring. You know, when people die by suicide, if you get really deep depression, at times you think, oh, like the pain was too much for them. You get tired of living. But then about six weeks ago, I qualified for a cochlear implant. I had an operation. My head looked like a baseball for a week. Uh, 
They put it in my right ear, which was completely deaf. I don't know the magic they did, but there's some kind of electronic device right in my inner ear. There is a transmitter in my head. I pick up Russian radio. No, uh, there's a magnet between my scalp and my skull. And this thing kind of sticks on. I don't know how it works, but I can hear in my right ear again. They said, thank you. They said, after 12 months, you might be borderline normal. I had a hearing test last week. Borderline normal is 100%. I was 92%. I heard the washing machine for the first time. I heard the car indicator for the first time. I heard cars going past me for the first time. Things I have never, ever heard that I just got used to not hearing. I found out my nickname when I walk off. <laughs> I'm not going to say what it rhymes with. I heard cicadas. What in the world are they? I don't know if they're flirting to female cicadas or they're very, very angry, but they're loud. They've ruined my peace and quiet outside. What I realized was, oh my goodness. Like it feels like I've come alive again. And when I was an addict, and I had forgiving grace. It's like, oh, I've been given a new life. I legitimately, not exaggerating, would nowhere near be alive at the moment. And then when my hearing came back, it's like, I was hopeless and helpless. I felt bound, I felt condemned in my life. And now I can hear again. What is heaven going to be like? What is it like when we see the deaf hear, the blind see, people that have struggled with character defects their whole life, and that character defect has been removed as far from them as the East is from the West. They're not just relying on forgiveness. The presence of God is with them. No more faith, no more hope, an eternity of love. I had a foretaste of that, and I'm still enjoying a foretaste of it with my cochlear implant. I am well aware that people in different countries at different times have not got a cochlear implant. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. Their future grace is going to happen when we meet Him face to face. What I would love to do, if someone uh, could come up and, do you say noodle? We don't have a keyboard. Will, thank you. You know it's fall. Here's a better indicator of when it's fall. Guys wear shirts with crosses on, those kind of checks on them. I tried one on this morning, my belly looked too big. So instead I went for an oversized jacket. <laughs> if you buy those shirts from Walmart, they are cheap. You put them in the tumble dryer, it looks awful, but Will is looking fantastic. Dan is looking lovely. Yep. Uh, what I'd love to do is offer us like a time of ministry, whether it's forgiving grace you need, whether it's like the family of grace, or whether you need your hope rekindled for the future grace. I would love you to come up and receive prayer. I'm going to ask if you're a leader at Life Church or Antioch Church or you have a passion for praying for people, will you come and stand up at the front, please? 
we would love to bring you into the presence of God. Sometimes He heals miraculously, probably has the ability to a lot more than we give Him. Other times, He gives us enough grace to see us through. So, I'm going to ask Will to noodle fast or play the strings. I'm going to pray for God's presence to be among us, and I'll hand it over to Dan to close out in a few moments. Okay, I'll close. Father God, we come to you now needing that touch of you in our lives. Lord, there's that enjoyment of spring season in our lives, Lord, and then we move sometimes to a winter time. We need your grace. We need your peace to descend upon us. Lord, help us to be that grace as a family as we pray for one another. Lord, I, I pray that people would come forward that have a disability. Lord, they just feel less able-bodied than other people. Pray for people to come forward that struggle with depression, Lord, that struggle with anxiety, who struggle with a, a sorrowfulness in their lives. And Lord, I pray you speak even now to each person here, letting them know which part of their life where they think it's impossible that you will make possible and probable and then certain. Lord, we worship you because you are worthy of worship. Thank you for grace. Thank you for peace. In Jesus' name.